Hey everyone, one quick note. This is your last chance to get a discount to GTM's New York Rev Future Conference happening next week in Brooklyn. We are gathering a who's who of energy experts and businesses in New York for a two-day event on that state's dramatic market changes. You've heard us talk about it. It is uh, crazy over there, the scope of what New York is trying to do, and we're going to help you figure it all out. Energy Gang listeners get 15% off at checkout. Just go to greentechmedia.com slash events and use the promo code ENERGYGANG, all one word, ENERGYGANG, on checkout. And a big thanks to our sponsor, Mission Solar Energy, a U.S. PV manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar's modules are designed, engineered, and assembled in their Texas-based 200-megawatt facility, and they serve residential, commercial, government, and utility applications, everything you can imagine. Adhering to the strictest quality standards, Mission Solar's modules outperform their competition in real-world conditions, proving to be an easy choice for installers, distributors, and developers. I hope you were able to go see them at SPI last week. If not, there's always the web. To find out more about Mission's high-powered, American-quality modules, visit missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. Gaze at the global clean energy landscape, and you'll see three large peaks off in the distance, towering above the rest. Their names, China, America, and India. We've focused a lot on market behemoths China and America in this show, less so on India, and it's time to remedy that. So this week we're going deep into the forces behind India's wind and solar boom. India has blossomed into one of the most important renewable energy markets in the world. And with immense growth comes new business and economic opportunity, but also political and economic risk. We're going to talk with the CEO of one of the country's largest renewables developers about both. So this week's show is a bit different than usual. We are not covering three topics. We're just going to devote the entire show to India. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Jigger Shah, who is the president of Generate Capital. Hello, Jigger. Hey, how are you? Good. So you know this market pretty well. It's, uh, it's about time we actually tackled India in a full show. Yes, it's, uh, it's a great time to tackle it. And there was actually a huge contingency of Indian folks at the uh, Solar Power International show in Vegas this week. Well, Catherine's out this week. She's traveling in Mexico City for business. We're going to miss her, but she sent along a few questions to ask our guest. And that guest is Sumant Sinha, the founder and CEO of Renew Power. Sumant is a former investment banker, the former CEO of a massive Indian conglomerate, and the former chief operating officer of Suzlon Power, which is an Indian wind manufacturer and developer. He founded Renew Power in 2011, overseeing two gigawatts of completed wind and solar projects with many more gigawatts in the works in the country. And we're going to pick his brain about India's energy market. Sumant, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Back in June, the business publication Quartz wrote a great profile on your career trajectory and your transition into renewables. And there was a moment in time, I think it was around 2010, you looked around at a lot of the activity that was ramping up in India and said, if all these other people who don't really know a lot about raising money, let alone renewable energy development, can do this, why not me? And so here we are six years later, you've got the biggest independent renewable energy company in India. What were the signals that you saw at that time that made you decide to start the company? Well, you know, Stephen, I was uh, at that time working in a company called Suzlon uh, Energy, which you referred to earlier. 
Uh, Suzlon was a big manufacturer of wind turbines, uh, selling a lot of turbines in the US as well. And of, also, of course, uh, in India, they had a 50% share of the market. And uh, while I was there, I saw that, uh, you know, more people were approaching us uh, who wanted to set up shop uh, as IPPs in India. And up until that point, uh, the, the entire Indian market had been a tax-driven market. And so therefore, uh, the end customers typically were, um, you know, a whole bunch of different types of people from jewelry companies, individuals, uh, anybody wanting to get a tax break for themselves. And uh, the government of India had introduced a generation-based incentive uh, in 2008 or thereabouts. And that uh, shift actually was causing uh, a lot of new players to come into the market, people who are more long-term dedicated uh, IPP type investors, uh, and examine uh, the market to see if it actually made sense. And they were coming to the conclusion that it did. And while I was sitting at Suzlon, I saw this happening. And as you observed earlier, I saw that most of these guys were people who had no real wind background, and, uh, but were setting up businesses. And so I said, this is a good time to think about doing the same thing because I did have the investment banking background in terms of raising money. I did have the understanding of how wind turbines and the wind industry worked in general. And I said, you know, if I don't jump into this right now, then I'll miss this boat forever. And so that's why I took the decision back in 2010 to start uh, Renew Power and um, uh, and get into the business. So that's how it actually happened. And and at that time, raising money was a challenge because VCs didn't want to spend a lot of money and invest. I think you were asking for $60 million in the initial capital raise. You were um, a little too early stage for private equity. You ended up raising $250 million from Goldman Sachs, though. So uh, obviously, you've had ties to the investment banking world. Um, what opportunities was Goldman looking for in the Indian market at that time? Yeah, so uh, what happened, Stephen, actually is that uh, uh, you're absolutely right. When I went to the venture guys, um, they said that uh, uh, we were uh, looking for money which was too large, uh, which is about $60 million. You know, typically venture guys fund a few million dollars at a time and go through the normal Series A, Series B and so on. Uh, so we weren't really fitting into what they were looking for. And the private guys said, look, you guys are too early stage for us. And so therefore, it didn't work from their standpoint either. But you know, if you pound enough doors and if you uh, uh, talk to enough people, uh, then something does tend to work out. So what happened in our case is actually uh, somewhat uh, fortuitous in that uh, uh, Goldman was actually looking for an invest, you know, a, a platform to invest in. And they had, uh, through their private equity business in the U.S., invested in a company called Horizon Energy, which they had been able to uh, scale up as a, as a startup platform and then sell to EDP subsequently. So they'd actually had a good experience of having done this earlier. And so uh, when they started looking at the Indian market, they came to the conclusion that that's what they wanted to find in India as well, which was a fairly early stage platform, which they could then help uh, scale up. And then eventually, of course, look at an exit a few years down the road. And so when I knocked on their door, uh, our conversations went fairly rapidly. And, uh, uh, you know, one of the questions they asked me is, look, we don't want you to be spending a lot of your time uh, looking to raise money. So tell us how much you want uh, to actually roll this business out and get it to a sustainable level. And so uh, I, um, 
that was a you know difficult question that I was suddenly confronted with. So I looked at uh, a business plan, put something together, and came back with a number of about two hundred million dollars for them. Uh, and they went ahead and got approval for that uh, for that amount to begin with. And then very quickly thereafter, because our business uh, grew faster than we'd expected, uh, they increased that commitment to two hundred fifty million dollars. So that's how we really got started. Uh, it was it was. Uh, unexpected from my standpoint, the way things turned out, positive in a in a in a positive sense, uh, and I'm glad that uh, you know uh, that that Goldman stepped up. No, it's a great story, and it's it's one that I think really resonates uh, as you and I have talked about in the past uh, uh, with I think the same story here in the U.S. with S Power. Um, I'm curious though about your uh, take around government policy, right? I mean, this government in particular has been quite um, vocal about its success uh, in the renewable energy space, as well as, you know, I think in to come the electric vehicle space. But at the same time, you have uh, state electricity boards that I think are quite fearful of the changes that are coming. And so, you know, how does one navigate a 100,000 megawatt goal um, with all of this sort of... Um, cheerleading from the central government and, you know, some trepidation at the state level? Yeah, so that's a great question, Jigar. Uh, and it obviously shows that, you know, the Indian market fairly, fairly deeply. Um, that's one of the biggest problems that we have in India right now, which is that we have a, a very strong and active central government uh, program to get to 100, 100 gigawatts of solar and 60 gigawatts of wind uh, in the next four years time from now. Um but ultimately, it's the states that uh, own the distribution companies and are the, ul- the ultimate buyers of power. And so unless they step up to the plate, um, we're not going to end up meeting this target. Um, and one of the big issues for us right now is that uh, uh, we, uh, are, we've got ourselves into a situation as a country where we've run into a power surplus situation. Now, this is not truly a power surplus situation. And the, and the reason for that is that we have a lot of pent-up demand in the system. You know, we have a lot of diesel gensets that are still operating. There's, uh, you know, power does not show up in a lot of different areas all the time. There's a lot of uh, uh, load shedding of power that happens as well. But on the face of it, um, it appears that, and if you take away all this suppressed power demand, it appears that there is an adequate supply of power. And so the states are therefore saying that, uh, hey, wait a minute, we, don't, we want to meet the renewable energy standards, but we don't really need to buy any more power. Uh, and so therefore, how much do you want us to dial back on thermal capacities? And uh, thermal PLFs in India have already fallen to about 60, 65%. So they're not very high to begin with. And so that resistance has actually showed up right now. Now, to my mind, this is a temporary phenomenon. And the chances are that... Uh, Give it six months, give it nine months, uh, you know, basic power demand will begin to reassert itself and uh, states will change their point of view and uh, we'll start having again, uh, you know, purchasing of power by them, which then can be renewables and for them to meet their RPO standards. So I think that will happen. But just in the in this very moment, we've hit a bit of a air pocket in terms of uh, the faster rollout of renewables. And so the central government is still pushing it hard. But the states are actually taking a step back. And um, so that's causing a bit of a pause in the system right now. You know, the Western governments in general are long power. And, and for us, you know, we really do need to 
uh, shut down coal plants or whatnot to accommodate more renewable energy. I think, but the the myth, I think, and maybe the actuality um, in emerging markets like you know China or India is that they have so much power growth that in fact renewable energy can just be used to meet the growth and there'd be no negative impacts on load factors for existing coal plants and existing generators. But but it sounds like that's a little bit of a myth, even if you think from a long-term perspective, that statement is still true. No, I think that statement, Jigar, is by and large true. I think that uh, ultimately power demand in a country like India will grow at 6 or 7% a year. And so therefore, even if you look at the fairly aggressive target for renewables, I think most of that will go to meet the incremental demand growth uh, in power rather than cutting into thermal uh, capacities right now. I think that's the way it's likely to evolve. There, there are also some grid constraints here. And some states, for example, have um, a peak power surplus. Some have a power deficit. And the problem are cross-state transmission lines and this grid integration issue that we, of course, deal with here in the U.S. and many other countries are facing as they integrate more renewables. So how much of this is about the build-out of the grid to actually connect power plants to get the energy where it's needed, rather than to continually need to build power plants themselves? You know, obviously, uh, the grid has to develop uh, in conjunction with or along with uh, increase in generation capacity for renewables. That's, I think, very clear. Having said that, in India right now, renewables is less than 8% of total power generated. And um, so therefore, it's not a problem at the aggregate grid level. Having said that, there are pockets of uh, renewables um, which are rich in both wind and solar. And so there are pockets of, uh, uh, of areas where uh, grid containment type of issues are coming up. But frankly speaking, those come and go depending on the augmentation of the grid. And so it's not really an endemic or a serious problem right now. Um, having said that, the government is also looking at building out green corridors. So they're looking at, they've identified six areas of India where uh, they expect more renewable capacity to come up. They are building in those areas these uh, new green corridors, which are basically high voltage lines to transfer power out from those areas into uh, the load uh, uh, centers. And so, um, and, and along with that, they're also working on now looking at uh, how the grid can be actually managed better. And there is a lot of talk now about de- demand response systems and ancillary pricing uh, systems and so on. Those are still some way away from getting done. Uh, but between uh, the fact that we have only 8% penetration right now, um, so we have some time in which to address some of these problems. So I think eventually the grid will not really end up being a big problem to meeting this 175 gigawatt target for renewables in the next five years. Um, I think the government is being relatively pragmatic about it and is working to resolve those problems on a fairly forward-looking basis. So I don't think the grid is going to, be, is going to become a big issue going forward. A quick pause of the show here to talk about our sponsor, Mission Solar Energy. You know, third-party testing has shown that Mission Solar modules have the highest PTC ratings of any American manufactured modules. What does that mean? Well, it means their modules maintain higher output in real-world conditions compared to any other American modules. Mission Solar's modules are subjected to multiple quality checks throughout the manufacturing process and endure stringent quality and reliability testing. Each product exceeds industry requirements and is backed by an independent 25-year linear warranty. 
You can learn more about Mission Solar's high-quality modules and see them get run over and shot by a tank and hit with a flamethrower at missionsolar.com. That is missionsolar.com. So I wanted to see if we could talk a little bit about the underbelly of the of the Indian market. I mean, I think many of us know that that some of the solar plants have been built, you know, cutting corners um, and then resulted in these very low cost of installation numbers. I wonder if you want to talk about, you know, how the Indian government and the industry itself is working to maintain quality standards and, you know, and how that impacts the overall investment market in India. Well, you know, we can break that question down, Jigar, into two different parts. One is the wind sector and the other is the solar sector. Now, in wind, I don't think there's any real concern because we have fairly high quality and large OEMs that have been manufacturing in India for a while. Uh, and we have very good quality standards, large O&M teams across India. So in wind, I don't really see that as being a fundamental problem. Plus, the certification uh, criteria are fairly stringent as well. Um, the issue is really much more in solar, uh, where uh, we are buying, uh, uh, for the most part, Chinese panels. Um, and uh, I, my view is that if you're not careful as a developer on uh, doing adequate checks on quality, uh, you know, chances are that you could be getting uh, not very high quality uh, module shipped to you. The second thing is that uh, perhaps given the pressure on downward pricing in tariffs on solar, people have been going to maybe not only tier one guys, but also tier two uh, suppliers. And so there could be a situation where some of these solar plants that have been set up uh, end up having problems on the module uh, quality uh, in the near future. And there are a couple of transactions we're looking at, uh, inorganic uh, uh, transactions where we're looking at evaluating uh, solar plants that have been set up by other people. And we do see some of that happening. And so recently, in fact, the Ministry of Renewable Energy has just come out with some guidelines for um, uh, maintaining minimum quality standards in solar modules as well. Now, how that is going to be implemented and enforced is a different matter, but certainly there is a recognition that we need to have better quality standards on solar modules, and they have tried to come up with something along those lines. How does that impact your cost of capital compared to maybe an equivalent developer in the U.S.? You know, I don't think there's a specific impact on cost of capital as a result of quality issues in India because those quality issues haven't really shown up as being very widespread so far. And I think if you're relatively careful like we are, then and if you have fairly stringent quality standards, then I think it is something that uh, that people don't really worry about that much. Uh, cost of capital in India is generally speaking a problem because our interest rates are very high. And therefore, any normal developer that wants to do any non-recourse project financing for any of their projects ends up typically paying about 10% in interest costs. So that's a whole separate problem uh, because costs of borrowing in India are generally speaking fairly high. Right. What can we say so far about the effectiveness of these competitive auctions which have brought in record low bids? So from from an outsider's perspective, we see these low bids and we say, look, look how cheap solar is. But as Jigger and you identified, there are some module quality issues with some projects. There are assumptions about availability of Chinese supply, which I know there, you know, there are some worries about availability of that supply ahead. Um, you know, are are these low prices sustainable? And what can we say so far about how effective these auctions have been? So you know, uh, 
I think from a public policy standpoint, if you were to ask uh, people in government, they'd say that these auctions have been an unqualified success. Um, and, and they would look at really the only metric that they care about, which is what has happened to tariffs. And tariffs have been driven down uh, quite dramatically. Um, a year ago, we were looking at tariffs in the range of about 8 or 9 cents. Today, tariffs are in the range of 4 or 5 cents. Um, uh, and of course, there has been a reduction in module pricing that has underpinned uh, this reduction in tariffs. But frankly, I think the tariff reduction has gone way ahead of uh, what's happening to CapEx costs. Uh, and I think that has been that has been uh, that has resulted from the fact that developers have been willing to cut their margins, and that I think is not healthy in the long run. And uh, it is a situation where some of the bidders who bid aggressive numbers are going to end up having a problem eventually. And we're already seeing that because uh, uh, most of these bidders have continued to assume that panel prices would go down in the future. And we are seeing a reversal of that happening in China, in Chinese module supplies right now. Um, so Indian module prices had gone down to sub 30 cents uh, till about uh, four or five months ago. Um, and people expected that they'd go down to the mid 20s uh, in the next three, four months. Instead of which they've actually gone into the mid 30s. And we are seeing a number of Chinese suppliers renege on price agreements and volume agreements uh, of the past and are increasing their tariffs. And if these tariffs stay where they are, the module supply costs, then that is going to hurt those people who bid aggressive numbers on some of these auctions. And so in some senses, people knew that they were taking these risks, but they willingly took them. And I think it's going to result in uh, some unprofitable projects getting done uh, and is going to eventually hurt uh, some of these people. And that is something that we've seen uh, in the past as well. We've had maybe two or three different uh, um, phases now of aggressive bidding in India and in every one of these uh, phases some companies or the other uh, end up uh, doing poorly and having to sell out or getting acquired or just going bankrupt. So we've seen that happening in the past and uh, it may very well happen in the future. So from the from a health of uh, the private sector and the development community standpoint I would say that uh, these uh, reverse auctions have not been a great success, uh, even though they've resulted in very low tariffs. And partly it is the developers themselves who are to blame for it. A man after my own heart. Uh, you know, I'm curious about cost of capital. Obviously, um, you know, in India, you've got, you know, higher inflation rates and that kind of stuff. But, you know, one of the other big challenges in India is that it doesn't fix its exchange rate like the Chinese have done for many years. And so the U.S. dollar uh, sort of depreciation really matters to Western investors as well. Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, sort of currency impacts uh, the cost of capital and maybe some of the, you know, tools that you have at your disposal just because, you know, 20 years is a long time? Yeah, so, you know, um, all the tariffs in India are denominated in local rupees. So there are, uh, you know, so there's one kind of risk which you take when you win a bid. And that is that you obviously have to buy some of your equipment in uh, US dollars, uh, i.e. modules uh, for the most part, inverters and most of the other equipment you get in India. So that exposes you to maybe six months or, or a year of uh, FX risk uh, based on whatever assumptions you might have made at the time of bidding till the time that you actually buy the modules. Now, that risk is something that you can hedge. Uh, 
uh, and the cost of hedging typically in India is about between 5 and 6% typically for a year. Um, I, I'm not sure that every developer builds in this cost of hedging or even does hedge uh, from winning the bid to actually buying the modules. Uh, but that's, that's one FX risk that you're exposed to. The second risk that you might get exposed to, depending on your financing strategy, is uh, if you choose to borrow in, um, in dollars or in some other uh, foreign currency. If you borrow in rupees, then of course your income is in rupees, your outflows in rupees, and you're totally hedged uh, from a debt standpoint. But if you were to borrow in dollars, then it would be very prudent for people to hedge altogether as much as they could into rupees. And that's frankly what we do because, you know, we're not in the business of taking FX risk. We're not FX traders. We don't understand that business. And it's not our core business. Uh, so we tend to hedge everything that we take. And so therefore, you know, whatever we borrow in dollars has to stack up uh, on a competitive basis to our rupee borrowing cost. And to the extent that it does on a fully hedged basis, then, you know, we're happy to look at borrowing in dollars as well. Now, for, for an equity investor, uh, for an offshore equ equity investor, uh, you know, the only way you can build in FX uh, 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 depreciation is by expecting a higher uh, IRR or equity um, return. And therefore, most foreign investors who invest in India know that the cost of borrowing in India is about 10% and therefore, you know, apply some sort of a risk premium on that for, for equity and for, for FX. And you'd come usually with a equity return or equity IRR requirement of about, you know, anything from 15 to 17%, depending on uh, what sort of an investor you are. If you're a private equity investor, then you'd probably be looking at the high teens. If you're an infra fund, maybe the low teens. If you're a strategic investor, like a European strategic, for example, maybe you're happy with the low teens. So that's the kind of range of uh, equity return expectations that most people tend to have when they invest in India and take FX uh, risk. And then I guess, I mean, just sort of uh, dovetailing with that is also the sort of low credit quality, right? I mean, for a lot of these state governments who are providing the PPAs, um, you know, they're not really sovereign risk per se, right? So, I mean, doesn't that affect the cost of capital as well? No, you're absolutely right, Jigar. Uh, the guys, uh, most of the distribution companies in India are owned by the state governments. Uh, their credit quality of the distribution companies is usually quite poor uh, and most of them are not uh, uh, rated very highly. Uh, having said that, there is some sort of an implicit state government guarantee behind most of these distribution companies and state governments, while they may not be equal to Indian sovereign risk, you know, are a sort of almost quasi-sovereign type situations. And so therefore, uh, the experience that we've had in India with distribution companies is that uh, they can very often run into cash flow problems and therefore not pay you on time. And sometimes those payment delays could add up to three months, six months, etc. But they've never really defaulted on any of their payments. So what that means is that, number one, you have to be patient on getting paid by these guys sometimes. Number two, you need to have the ability of working the system in India uh, in case your payments are not showing up. So you need to have a very strong local presence. And uh, number three, you need to be able to manage your cash flows in a way that these kinds of delays don't derail your business model. So you need to have working capital lines. You need to have over equitization. Um, you know, you need to have those kinds of mechanisms that allow you to tide over potential delays that may very well happen in cash flows. 
So let me get at a more fundam fundamental question, which is, is the 100 gigawatt solar target by 2022 realistic? Will India be able to get there? I saw some numbers from earlier in the year showing that India's solar growth needs to expand by fourfold just to be on track to hit that 2022 target. Um, even while the country's solar market is expanding rapidly and we are seeing these record low prices come in. Um, so so do you think that the country can get on track or is on track to hit that ambitious solar target? Well, you know, Stephen, the target was set for 2022, as you said. And today we've got about 14 gigawatts installed. And there's probably another 8 gigawatts that has been auctioned off. So that gets us to about 22, right? But we're still well short of the 100 gigawatt target. Uh, and I doubt that we're going to add 78 gigawatts in the next four years. I don't think we're going to go at the rate of 20 gigawatts a year from here on, just given the pace at which new auctions uh, are happening, or really I should say the lack of pace at which new auctions are happening. So unless this number is, you know, suddenly ramped up and on a back-ended basis, we suddenly start doing 25, 30 gigawatts in 2021, 2022, which I doubt is going to happen. My suspicion is that we'll fall short of the target. Having said that, however, we'll probably still end up doing 10 to 15 gigawatts every year from now to the next three or four years. And so that will probably take us to about 60 to 70 gigawatts as a total number. And... Uh, and that's not an insignificant number. I mean, you know, adding 10 to 15 gigawatts every year uh, is pretty sizable. And as you said earlier in your speech, um, you know, that will place us at, at uh, either number two or number three globally, because obviously, depending on what the U.S. does, uh, we could very well either overtake the U.S. as the second largest market in the world or be a close number three. So it will still mean that India will be a large market. So, Sumant, I wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the other sectors in India. Um, as you know, India has long uh, subsidized kerosene for um, the poor. Much of that kerosene is adulterated by, you know, officials before it actually even gets to the poor. Um, you know, there was a big push to to try to provide solar lanterns and other solutions for these populations. I'm wondering whether you think that initiative is going well. No, to be honest, Jigar, I can't say that it is going very actively. Uh, I think there's certainly an effort in that direction. Um, and it's also not just for lighting, but it's also for cooking. Um, and uh, there has been a strong effort made to go with uh, smokeless uh, cooking uh, mechanisms uh, through, uh, you know, whether it's solar powered or through some bio-gag, you know, mass-type situations. So there's been an effort made, but frankly speaking, I think we're very far away from actually getting to a point where every part of rural India has uh, solar lanterns and, and, uh, and things like that. So what responsibility do you think that the solar industry in India, you know, has to lobby and, you know, work on these types of things? I know that when Sun Edison was around, you know, they would sort of, you know, in lieu of bribing officials, which of course is illegal under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, they would, you know, donate microgrids or donate some of these, um, you know, types of implements. I mean, I'm just curious whether you think that there's a, you know, responsibility of the Indian Solar Association to sort of push these issues. Hmm. You know, I think that uh, given how aggressive the government is on reducing tariffs, 
I don't know that the solar companies in India have a lot of spare capacity to be taking money out and doing a lot of these activities on a pro bono basis, to be very honest with you. Therefore, what's happening is that there are a few companies uh, that are trying to get into rural areas through microgrids and uh, solar equipment and stuff like that. But those are very few and far between. And uh, I do, you know, those are mostly social impact companies. And uh, I haven't seen them make a tremendous amount of headway. I mean, they have made some progress, but it's still very much at the margins right now. When you look at the competitiveness of wind and solar in India, what we're seeing are a lot of bids coming in at below the price of you know, what thermal power plants can provide. But of course, India is going to continue to build a lot of coal plants. Um, how are the surge in renewables like wind and solar starting to impact incumbent investments or the way that current the way that existing thermal power plants are run is it starting to have an impact now and what impact do you think it'll have on you know future coal investments in the country which are still expected to increase substantially yes yeah, so i think that's a that's a great question stephen and, and you know there has been some debate in india recently about this uh, particular issue uh, the fact that thermal there are a lot of stranded assets in the thermal sector the fact that thermal PLFs are very low and therefore the thermal guys are not making any money. And people have tried to put the fault at the door of renewables. But I think that's a bit of a misbegotten effort. And the reason for that is that the reason uh, that, that PLFs and thermal are so low right now is because there has just been an overbuild of thermal capacities. And uh, those thermal capacities were locked away because they couldn't get access to fuel supply. But those fuel supply issues have recently been de-bottlenecked. And so suddenly we have a lot of these thermal capacities that have come on stream uh, and uh, with, with fuel supply, which are therefore now operating at low PLFs. And so people are trying to attribute that as being uh, emanating from the renewable side. Uh, but as I said, it's not really uh, fair to do so. I think going forward, if you look at the government's plan for the next five years and then the five years after that, so let's say 10 years, in the next five years, they don't uh, expect any new thermal capacities to get built out at all. Whatever is currently in construction, which is about 25,000 megawatts, uh, is all that they are talking about coming, getting into production, into uh, uh, generation. And then they're also at the same time talking about, uh, in the plan, shutting down an equal amount of, uh, of thermal capacity, old, outdated, etc. In the five years after that, there is some small build-out of thermal capacities, uh, maybe to the tune of 20, 25,000 megawatts additional uh, in the period from 2022 to 2027. So uh, what this plan assumes is that the full 175 gigawatts of renewables will get built out uh, by 2022. Uh, and then beyond that, up to 2027, that will hit a capacity of about 40% of renewables uh, as a percentage of total capacity in the power sector in India. So, so that's how the government's planning has been done. So they've clearly prioritized uh, renewables, new renewables first. Then they've looked at hydro, then uh, new nuclear. And then as a last step, they've looked at filling the gap with new thermal. Uh, so I think the government is pretty clear that they want to encourage renewables to begin with. And then, you know, as a last step, look at thermal. I want to be able to get some questions in from Catherine, who couldn't make it today. And she wanted to know about the 
emergence of electric vehicles there. I know that a lot of the electrification push and the new models that are coming out from manufacturers are actually electric scooters. Um, there's a, a major push to get 100% EVs on the road by 2030. How seriously are companies and investors taking that goal? And um, you know, what, what can we say about progress with electrification in India today? So I think on the electric vehicle front, there is now an increasing and rapidly increasing talk uh, and conversation around that. And uh, one reads more and more articles in the papers about some government minister or the other saying that we should move towards electrifying our vehicle fleet sooner than later. Um, as a first step, the government has now announced a program to uh, convert all government official cars to electric cars. And so therefore, they've come out of the tender for 10,000 10, vehicles um, uh, to be purchased, which are electric. Um, so they started work in this area. There is not yet a formal target uh, as to when this conversion should happen to electric vehicles. The 2030 target was, I think, an off-the-cuff remark made by the then Minister of Energy. I don't think it was a seriously um, uh, a discussed uh, target that was put up by the government. Um, but that is passing for whatever target exists right now in India. So having said that, my belief is that we're going to move very rapidly now towards electric vehicles. And, um, uh, you know, partly it will depend upon how quickly the Indian automotive industry can change towards electric vehicles. I think it will happen sooner than later. Uh, and that will hopefully lead to higher electric demand as well. And, you know, by some measures, that should lead to maybe a 20-30% higher electricity demand uh, compared to whatever might have been the default case. And that eventually is going to be good for renewables. So the other question I had, Sumanth, is around uh, the leadership in the region. So, you know, I mean, given that India is generating all this extraordinary expertise uh, within its country, um, do you see India helping, you know, other countries in the region, whether it's Nepal or Bangladesh or, or Sri Lanka or other places? You know, I think we will, uh, Jigar. And, uh, you know, the Indian Prime Minister has a very strong yen for the solar business. Uh, and, uh, you know, at some level, he wants to take the lead globally on the solar side. And he has been very active in uh, setting up uh, a UN-mandated treaty-based organization called the International Solar Alliance, which uh, is being, uh, I think, uh, formally inaugurated by the Indian Prime Minister and the French President uh, in December of this year. And uh, the idea of the Indian government is to basically take the lead in solar technologies, uh, at least for developing countries, and do exactly what you said, which is to export our know-how, uh, export our understanding, uh, export our technologies, whatever we can develop uh, to other countries, uh, certainly within the developing uh, uh, sector. As the rest of the world turns its eyes to India, as the, the energy market there evolves and expands, what's something that you know about the Indian market that you wish everybody else knew? Look, I think that uh, India is a very paradoxical market, Okay. On the one hand, you have great opportunity here, and uh, it is a large market. The government's targets are big, um, and so therefore, anybody who's looking to diversify into any market outside the home market 
you know, India does make a lot of sense. But the paradox lies in the fact that it is also at the same time a very difficult market to operate in. And if you're not aware of the very local operating issues, the local operating, the regulatory environment, uh, dealing with the Indian bureaucracy, dealing with land acquisition issues, you know, those can really, really be difficult. And so therefore, the amount of effort required uh, per unit of output is a lot higher. And so therefore, you have to be prepared for uh, really, really getting down to the brass tacks and dealing with a lot of these issues with your sleeves rolled up and being prepared for a lot of things that can possibly go wrong. So opportunity, but risk at the same time. So final question about Renew Power itself. You've raised about $850 million since you started. The company is valued at a couple billion dollars U.S., um, you have a couple gigawatts of projects that you've completed, and you have said that you are looking toward a 10 gigawatt clean energy goal. What are some things that you're thinking about in terms of risk and how to manage the company as you expand to such a large goal as a developer in India? Well, you know, uh, Stephen, the most important thing for us right now is that uh, um, this is a capital intensive business. And therefore, we need to have continued access to capital because that's really, in some senses, our raw material. And so one of the things that we're looking at in the near future is to do an IPO, uh, get publicly listed. That will allow us to have access to uh, public capital markets to raise more financing should we require it. I think that's one of the things that you want to do. And that will lead to a churn in our shareholder base. Uh, you know, some of our earlier shareholders will look to exit. And that's something that we'll have to just manage through. Uh, the second thing is uh, uh, that we have to be very careful about the states of India that we operate in and uh, also how we manage our assets. Because as I said earlier, there are so many things that can go wrong. Uh, in India, there is always a lot of turbulence uh, in terms of the regulatory environment. Uh, state governments change, bureaucrats change, ministers change, and all those changes result in um, some impact on your business. So navigating through all of that uh, in, a, in a situation where our portfolio size gets bigger, our footprint becomes more complex and more varied, uh, I think that is going to require us to have a very large organization that can deal with a lot of these issues. So creating that organization and having that ability to deal with a lot of these issues as they arise is going to be the other important thing. But you know what? Over the last three, four years since we've been operating, we have uh, set up about 8 to 10% of all new solar capacity and, and wind capacity. And uh, uh, our aim is to carry on doing that. And if we can, uh, and as the government you know, tries to achieve its own targets, uh, we'll get close to that number that you mentioned, which is 10,000 megawatts. And that will actually make us a very sizable company. And I think the path to that is fairly um, visible and, and, and clear-cut. And we just need to execute well, and we'll get to that point. Suman Sinha is the founder and CEO of Renew Power. He's a very successful businessman, having worked across a wide range of very large companies and in investment banking, and has expanded Renew Power into the biggest independent renewable power provider in India. I'm glad we got to dig into some of the big issues that you're dealing with and that India is dealing with. Thank you. You're most welcome, Stephen. Thanks a lot. Thank you both to you and to Jigar and the absent Catherine for having me on. Thank you. 
And Jigger Shaw is my regular co-host. He's the president of Generate Capital. Jigger, thank you. This was a good conversation. Do you think we, we covered everything we needed to in this short period of time? I'm sure India has many more topics to offer, but this was a good first step. (laughs) Indeed, absolutely. Thank you all for listening. Again, you can connect with us on Twitter. You can send us your thoughts and your ideas to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Are there other countries that you want us to dig into, either talking to policy leaders or business leaders in, in those areas? Let us know. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you next week with Jigger Shah. I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Energy Gang.